excited this morning that I get to preach to you at the change of seasons. Some of you know that I love the liturgical calendar, and so I am not going to miss a chance to bring it up. So you noticed when you walked into our space, I'm sure that there are different decorations here this morning, bright and twinkling lights. The candle wreath has made a reappearance, and we've got this beautiful new original art. These banners back here were created for us by our new artist in residence, Emily Posey. Yeah. They're amazing, aren't they? And they are going to correspond to the passages we read each week of Advent. And so the space has transformed this morning. We are enjoying being together. Some of us have family with us that we might not normally have. There's a sense of anticipation in the air this morning. And while the wider culture outside these doors has moved into full-on anticipation of Christmas and all of the retail and consumerism that that brings with it, The season that we as a church are entering together is a season all its own. Even now, upstairs, our little ones are turning their attention to the liturgical calendar wall hanging. I think we can see it together, too, here in a moment. Yep, there we go. And they are noticing that we are on the first of the purple squares, which means both that we are in the first Sunday of Advent and the very first Sunday of a brand new Christian year. So again, an ending came last week and a new beginning has arrived before we're ready in lots of ways. But that's what God does. He does a new thing and takes us by surprise all the time. And so this morning we get to enter together into the season of Advent. And Advent, at the very beginning of our Christian year, is an opportunity for us to fix our eyes on the end. You see, because Christmas is about the first coming of Christ, But Advent literally means coming. And we in this season are going to fix our eyes on the yet-to-come second coming of Christ. This is an opportunity for us to long together as a community for the fullness of the promise that has not yet been fully fulfilled. It's an opportunity for us to acknowledge in Advent that the journey we are walking is difficult. And it's an opportunity for us to confess that we yearn for Jesus to come again. Life is hard and we need a savior, not just one who came the once at Christmas like Jesus did, but he's coming back to be with us forever. And so even though we are walking a hard journey in life and we remember that during Advent, we are also walking an ancient path. This path is one that was walked by the people of Israel long before we came on the scene. Earlier, Scott was saying, we are the Gentiles in a lot of scripture, and that is true. This ancient path that has been handed down to us. And that's a path that we are going to focus on together as we read the Old Testament lectionary passages together this Advent. We're going to have four weeks of beautiful visual imagery prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And each of these images up here are from those passages to kind of stir our imagination. And as we delve into those passages and those prophecies together, we will also think about the Advent themes of hope and peace and joy and love. And we will realize that though we are walking a hard journey, we are also walking a journey filled with promise. And that's the name of our Advent series this year. We're calling it the Path of promise. So this ancient path of promise, the promises in Isaiah were first given to the Israelites, 
they were the original audience, and they received the promise of a Messiah hundreds of years before Jesus ever came into the world. Generation after generation of Israelites believed the promise, held on to the promise, passed the promise down to one another without ever seeing the fruit of its fulfillment. That is amazing faith. That is staggering faith that ought to encourage us and push us on. So as they received this promise and as they lived out this promise together, there was even a time called the intertestamental period in between the Old and the New Testaments after the last prophet received word from God and before Jesus came into the world that we call 400 years of silence. There was no prophet during that time. The people of God held on to a promise for 400 years with no further word that the fulfillment was coming. And we have inherited that same promise. Unlike those generations of Israelites who waited in silence, we have seen the beginning of fulfillment. We have seen the fruit, part of it, the already part of the promise. We know that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise for a Messiah. We've seen it in his birth and his death and his resurrection. We also heard that God promised power to live out his way and that he promised us another advocate. And we've seen the Holy Spirit as the fulfillment, the fruit of that promise. And even the Holy Spirit is only a partial fulfillment for us. We're told in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. So we have seen in little ways and in big ways that God, our God, is not just a promise maker, but a promise keeper. And friends, this Advent, that is the truth that keeps us walking when the journey is hard. Like the original audience of Isaiah, we too walk a path of promise. We are waiting and longing for a fulfillment that we've only seen in part, and we are trusting the word and the long-term work of our promise-keeping God. This Advent, we're going to encourage each other to hold on to hope and to peace and to joy and to love and to keep on the path of promise. In fact, it's an encouragement to walk in this path that we find in our first passage from Isaiah today. And you can see in today's image, there is a path because that's exactly what we're talking about in this passage. And we heard a portion of it in the candle lighting liturgy, but let's hear 2, 1 through 5, Isaiah 2, 1 through 5 together now. This is what Isaiah, Amos's son, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted above the hills. Peoples will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, come, let's go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion, the Lord's word from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. Then they will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will no longer learn how to make war. Come, house of Jacob, let's walk by the Lord's light. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The imagery in that passage is beautiful, isn't it? powerful, stirring, and it's also clear. It's not hard for us to grasp the vision Isaiah is casting, that God's way is one of peace and justice and beautiful division. 
There's all the nations. Do you hear that? Isn't there? All the nations are coming to the Lord. And they're at peace with one another. The images, especially of beating weapons into gardening tools, are powerful. They're a powerful word, especially after the couple weeks we've had. Especially after several more mass shootings. Especially after all the devastating gun violence in our own community throughout this past year. Sometimes it's hard to believe that there's another way. But Isaiah casts the vision and says, yes, there is. Hold on to that hope. These images are meant to capture our hearts and our imaginations. But what we might not catch as quickly, just by reading the passage, is the meaning of the imagery about the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord's house. And so we can unpack this in two different ways. First, we can think about what it means to think about a mountain of the Lord in the wider prophetic scripture. So we look at the whole of scripture to understand parts of it better. And so in other prophetic literature of scripture, mountains refer to the reigns of kings. And so when Isaiah talks about the mountain of God being higher than all the other mountains, being elevated above all the other mountains, he's saying the reign of God, the reign of God's kingdom will be elevated above all others. It will be the one to triumph, right? And then the second way we can think about this image is in the context of the ancient writing. So in ancient culture, mountains were the dwelling places of gods. And so it was a pantheistic ancient culture. There were lots of gods on lots of different mountains, ruling, removed from the world. And Isaiah is talking to a culture who understands those images. And he says the God of Israel, the one true God, also has a mountain dwelling place. He has a high and holy dwelling place. But did you notice that though it is high and holy, it is accessible to all of the nations? Everyone is streaming to it. Everyone can reach it. Because God wants to be with his people. This accessibility of God's dwelling is unique. And it is a powerful promise. Interestingly, a very similar sounding prophecy and God's accessibility is found at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 21. And I'm going to read an excerpt for us in a minute. But before I do, I just want to establish the point that the agreement, the similar sounding images in these two totally different prophetic books from completely different times in history and really different authors (laughs) have a point. They show us that the promises of God are unified, and that they're trustworthy, right? They're carried through. It's carried through the witness of the whole of Scripture. But I know that some of you are probably sitting out there, and you're like, okay, great, beautiful imagery. I'm not an imagery person. This is up in the clouds. Like, what is actually promised? What's the promise we're talking about, right? And so I want to say to you today that I believe the witness of Scripture and both of these passages, the Isaiah 1 and the Revelation 1, are showing us that the promise for which we are waiting and taking hold is about the unbroken presence of God and the unending rule of his kingdom. That's what we're walking towards, okay? And all of us who preach here at Embrace understand and believe together that the gospel of Jesus is about a whole lot more than just getting to heaven. So I know that you have heard about this promise and you've captured pieces of this promise time and again. But because we come from lots of different backgrounds, and some of us might not have heard it spelled out in these many words, I'm just going to take a moment to spell out what I believe this promise is that we're receiving. 
Many of us were taught in churches of our background that the promise that we are laying hold of is about escaping the world for heaven. We have been taught that we are meant to just while away our days here, longing for our true home in heaven, and that that's the end goal, right? That's what a lot of the church has been told to believe. However, the witness of scripture is that God actually cares very much about this world, that he cares about all its people and all its nations and everything that he has created. Sidebar, maybe that's why we should care about what he has created, right? So because that's the witness of scripture, the reality is that the promise we're waiting to take hold of isn't about escapism, but when Jesus comes back again, he isn't coming to take away the faithful, to snatch them up and take them away somewhere else and leave the world to burn. Not the picture, not the picture of scripture. Instead, Jesus is coming back to establish his reign of love and peace and justice and thriving for all people right here on the earth, in all of its fullness, forever, no other challenges, no other wars. Like, that's, it's the end, is, is that wholeness for everyone and for everything. The old and the broken and the wasting away is not going to be destroyed. It's going to be transformed, recreated, breathed new life. And you know, in Christian theology, we call this something really straightforward, new creation. This is the promise towards which we are walking. We believe instead of two separate dwelling places, like there are currently one for God and spiritual beings and one for temporal beings and humans, that new heaven and the new earth will be combined so that we will dwell together forever. In just and peaceful and unbroken, diverse but unified communion with God and with one another. So we're not leaving earth for heaven as an end destination. Rather, heaven is coming down to join the earth so that we may be one with God for all eternity. This is the new creation in which all of our longings find their fulfillment and in which the reign of Christ will be without end. Snapshot, that's the promise, okay? When Isaiah speaks of the mountain of the Lord, and it being elevated above all the others, and it being accessible, he's giving us a snapshot of the new creation. And I believe that same image is filled out even more, but with similar elements, in Revelation 21. This is a beautiful passage. It's really full of pictures. You kind of have to see the whole canvas it's creating. So I'm going to read a really big chunk, but it'll be up on the screen if you want to follow along. This will be Revelation 21, 1 through 4, and then we're going to skip down to 10 through 26. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Aren't these images stunning? Isn't this a beautiful picture of what it looks like for God and humanity to dwell together as one? I especially love, and I hope you guys caught, that the beauty and diversity of all the nations is part of what gives the new heaven and the new earth its splendor. Right? God cares very much about all of the people that he has created. There's no need for sun or moon because God himself is the light for all of the people. I love this. This is one of my favorite images in all of scripture. And both this revelation passage and what Isaiah already shared with us cast a vision of fulfillment for a very old promise. So the first time we see a promise arrive to the family of Abraham in scripture, Part of what God says in that promise, very central to that original promise, is, and I will be with you and be your God. And did you hear that? That same thing in the Revelation passage? The fulfillment of that promise to Abraham is in the new creation. The writer of Revelation says when the new heaven comes down to the new earth, that he will be with them and be their God. That right there is fulfillment language of a very old promise. We who have seen fulfillment in part know that Jesus is God being with humanity in a brand new way like never before, flesh and blood, right? We also know that the Holy Spirit is God being with us in a new way like never before, intimate, empowering, God being with his people. But the story of new creation is about God being with his people in the same place, at the same time, with no barriers, no misunderstanding, no division, for all eternity. That's the picture and the promise fulfilled. And though I just traced the passage or the promise back to Abraham, it actually goes back even further than that. N.T. Wright is a leading New Testament scholar, and he says that the communion between God and humanity when they walked together in the cool of the day in Eden is actually like a picture of a pilot project of the new creation. So what got started back in Eden, like very beginning of the story, right, gets fulfilled in the new creation. It's all unified. God has been up to the same work, and he is the promise keeper, right? But for those of you who have heard of N.T. Wright, you might have also heard that he was here recently. Not here, here, a little further down the road, in Wilmore at Asbury Theological Seminary like two weeks ago. And so a few of the Embrace staff and teaching team got to go on a little field trip together and hear him talk. And that was really cool. You know, I was geeking out a little bit. But he shared over a week's worth of time lots of different teachings about work he's been invested in for about a decade now. And his life's work, central to what he feels called to do, is to exegete the scripture, which just means interpret it, and help the church recapture the vision of new creation. He says, wait, wait, we've gotten it wrong. Like, we've got to back up. We've really truncated it. We've really made it smaller than it is. 
new creation is the picture, right? And in his teaching, when I got to sit and listen to him talk, he actually used the phrase pilot program twice. So he first said that Eden was the pilot project of the new creation. But then as he continued to share, he said that over and over throughout the New Testament, there's support after support for this idea that the church is the pilot project of the new creation. And what that means then is that the church is the visual of the hope for new creation. That the church gets to image to the rest of the world that this promised different future is coming. That's a really beautiful task. It can feel like a heavy task sometimes. But there is our hope word, right? That's our Advent theme. And it's part of what it means to be longing for new creation is to hold out hope to the world. Ultimately, Isaiah's prophecies are meant to tell the struggling people of Israel and also us that another future is possible. And that's what we, the church, as the pilot project of the new creation, also get to say. Another future is possible. Not only possible, but promised and coming. Even in the midst of the violence and division and hatred that we see, another future is coming. Possible and promised. As is always true with prophecy, much of what is written, both in Isaiah and in Revelation, is symbolic. That means that the beautiful imagery and the incredible language it uses is not necessarily giving us an exact picture of what's going to happen, but is giving us kernels of deep truth, is inviting us to imagine this different future. And so even though it's not giving us a prescription, it's giving us something even more inspiring and empowering, right? This image that we can imagine, that we can cast for other people and show with our own lives what it might look like and invite people to imagine this different future. The path of promise that we're walking together this Advent is the path leading us towards this different future. And so we're going to continue to encourage each other to keep on the way. And today, specifically, we're going to encourage each other both to hold on to hope and to be a vision of hope as we walk the path. So what does it look like for the church to be hope, to depict to the world what it could look like to live this different way that belongs to Jesus? Well, here's one snapshot. Pulling on the very images shared here in Isaiah's second chapter, one Christian organization is literally turning weapons into gardening tools. Raw Tools is run by a man named Michael Martin who's a former Mennonite pastor turned blacksmith. And you can see him here working in community. He has all sorts of people work with him to turn weapons into gardening tools. If this inspires you, you can search on YouTube and very easily find a video of Shane Claiborne, a well-known faith leader and activist, partnering with Raw Tools to turn specifically an AR-15 into a garden tool. Now talk about imaging hope, right? <laughs> taking the very things that are destroying us and recreating something that is life-giving. Well, for many of us, holding on to hope and being hope in this world is not going to look quite that dramatic, although it could. Imagine all the possibilities and run for them, right? But the principles are the same. What does it look like for us to take death-dealing instruments or words and systems created to do harm and recreate them 
so that they actually promote life. For instance, maybe you have a dying relationship with someone in your life. Maybe it's not something that needs to be restored. Even so, you can still choose to speak words of life to and about that person. Maybe you're feeling especially convicted about the incredible increase in rent prices in our city and the rise in homelessness that's being the direct outcome of that. You can choose to hold on to hope and to be hope by showing up in the places where struggling people gather. Even the gathering on Monday night here. And you can choose to be a friend, to be consistent and present, to be encouraging and to stand in solidarity in the midst of these hard times. Maybe there's someone in your neighborhood or your work community who you've noticed is especially isolated. You can choose to hold on to hope and to extend hope by just inviting them to dinner. Take them to lunch sometime. Listen, let them be heard and known, share of yourself. We can choose to give an invitation into community and at the same time be the image of the communion to come. What it looks like to be hope and to hold on to hope can be really different. There's so many different options, but fundamentally it is a resistance to the way things are and an acted out trust that a different future is possible. Not just possible, but promised and coming and final, eternal. So this first week of Advent, I want to invite each of us to reflect, to consider about what the darkness and the pain and the distress is that you have a front row seat to. And then I want to encourage you also to ask the Holy Spirit to guide you into creative ways to hold on to hope and to be hope to others, to be an image of hope in this world, even in the face of that darkness. Church of Jesus, let us walk in the paths of God and the light of the Lord all Advent long. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.